pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, that, God, we would have ears to hear. Lord, I pray that as we continue to see the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice, that, Lord, our hearts would be open to receive this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to focus on a good section of Scripture this morning. And we're going to look at verses 1 all the way down to verse 18. And um, the title of this message is A Fully Sufficient Gospel. A Fully Sufficient Gospel. You know, when we think about something that is sufficient, we're thinking about something that is adequate, that is enough. Have you ever discovered a product that you purchased that was not adequate? I, um, you know, I, I, I make this mistake often. I think because I have a lot of children, uh, you know, if you buy fishing rods and fishing poles and reels, you're tempted to think that you need the, the best one. But often when you're buying four or five of them, you, you're tempted to go, you're just, you're, you're trying to see if you can get a deal. And uh, I've had a lot of problems with cheap reels. And, you know, you got a reel and you got a pole and you're fishing for brim and you catch like a one pound bass and your rod breaks in the first like 10 minutes of a new purchase. That is not a good feeling. I remember growing up uh, and now I understand it better. Um, when I was a kid, you know, or my dad would often make this statement, you know, we, I'd get the kid's meal or something and it would be the smallest portion you could ever imagine. And it'd be like 6 o'clock, and he'd be like, wow, that's great. That'll last him until about 6.45. And now I, I'm experiencing that with my younger kids. I mean, wow. They eat dinner, and you're thinking the moment you see the amount of food on the plate, you're thinking that is not adequate. That is not enough. And when we look at this, I want you to think about it through the lens of religion, and I want you to think about it through the lens of a self-righteousness. There's a reason that there's so many different religious systems in the world. And it's because there's such a great deception as to the reality that man and women and boy and girl cannot save themselves. If it were so simple to understand, there wouldn't be this amount of deception that we see in the world. And when we look at this letter and we look at this epistle, what we're discovering is over and over and over, you think about how the author of Hebrews continues to make the same assertions in many different ways to establish the reality that there's only one sufficient sacrifice. There's only one sufficient way to God. And that way to God is not through man's efforts or man's self-righteousness or man's sincerity our man's church going, our man's religious commitment, it is only through a sufficient and adequate high priest. And apart from God's means and God's appointed way, we will never experience forgiveness of sins. A fully sufficient gospel. When we look at this passage, we're basically seeing this thing break down, verses one through four, verses 5 through 9, verses 10 through 14, verses 15 through 18. It sort of breaks down in a little bit of sections here. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four observations, four observations about a fully sufficient gospel, four observations about our fully sufficient gospel. I've got a notebook. I'm having trouble with technology today. So I've got to back up, but we're going to see if this works. Four observations about our fully sufficient gospel. Let's start out by reading the text in verses 1 down through verse 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. When we look at verses one through four, right out of the gate, we see in these four observations, we see an insufficient way in verses one through four, an insufficient way. He's going to show us that Jesus is a sufficient savior. He offers a sufficient sacrifice. He brings a sufficient covenant. But before he gets to that reality, he starts yet again. You may be thinking, wow, you talk about going back over the same theme over and over and over, and he has, hasn't he? How many times growing up did your parents tell you the same things over and over and over? I remember Philippians, you know, um, it is a, he says, it's no problem for me to say the same things to you, but it's a safeguard for you. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He is continuing to repeat the message. I heard about the old Southern preacher, and uh, he preached the same text like four weeks in a row, same sermon. They thought it was interesting the second week, but the third week, he got a lot of negative feedback. And he said, you know, and you probably heard this before, but the older gentleman said, if you start listening, I'll change sermons. We're going to keep staying right here. And, and you may be thinking that with the author of Hebrews. And what he's doing is he's continuing to hammer this home. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. We, we see an insufficient way. And and in the first part of this insufficient way, we see the law is just a shadow. How many of you have noticed a shadow lately? It'd be hard to notice a shadow today. It's a lot of rain and clouds. But occasionally at about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, when the sun's just right, I'll get to that door over here, this glass door. And recently I was coming in and uh, had to get something. We had a flag football game. And... Uh, I got fired on the tarmac in flag football this year. We were 1-11. It didn't really go well. And, uh, but I was coming to get some plays. I should have left them here. But I was coming to get some plays on my desk. And I got to the desk, and I, and I looked straight across the room. And on that wall right there, the sun was hitting just right, and I saw a shadow of myself. Sort of weird seeing, it's sort of like being on a computer when FaceTime comes up and you start screaming when you see video of yourself on the screen. I was looking at who, what is that? It was me on the wall. And when you see a shadow, if you're, if you're outside and you're in a big city and you're walking around corners and the, and the sunlight is just right and you happen to see a shadow of someone or something that you have not yet come into view with, what does the shadow do? it causes you to look at who or what the shadow is pointing to. That's exactly what he's doing. He's saying everything that you can read in the Old Testament is a shadow that's pointing you to the reality of who Jesus is. No matter what it is, no matter if it's the priest or the high priest, no matter if it's the tabernacle or the furniture, no matter if it's the holy place or the most holy place, no matter if it's the blood of bulls or the blood of goats, no matter if it's the day of atonement or all of the holy days, every reality, every picture is pointing to a greater reality. It is in a sense a type, many types in the Old Testament, but what's the point? The idea is that the Old Testament is pointing us to a greater reality, and the reality is Jesus. And here he starts out, and he shows us it's just a shadow. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. I love that, the true form. It's that word icon. It's the word used in chapter 1 when speaking about Jesus, that he's of the same nature. He's same substance as the Father. He's eternal. He's preexistent. When we start developing a theology of our triune God, we see who he really is. We see that he's equal with the Father. And here he's speaking of that word in the sense of the true form. It's the accurate picture 
It is the true reality. And he says, look, all the law and all the priesthood of Aaron was intended to do was to just be a shadow in chapter eight of Hebrews. The author says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It really is fascinating to think about all those word pictures, all of those theological pictures. And you go all the way back, and we can see this even in the New Testament. But think about even at the time of the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness of Egypt. And as they were there on the verge of finding their freedom in the promised land, well, they were going to be in the wilderness for 40 years, but before they crossed the Red Sea, and we see that Passover lamb, and that Passover lamb, and the blood of the Passover lamb was put over the doorpost on the side of the doorpost. Little did they know that what they were doing was a picture of what Christ would provide for the world. Little did they know that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Little did they know that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming on the stage and coming onto the, the area where he was baptizing, where John the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the reality. Everything we see in that Old Testament and our Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. It's a shadow pointing Two, the substance. He refers to this as the words good and true, a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It reminds me of 1 Peter. I was studying this, and, and immediately this it hit my mind. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In verse 11 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I love this. It was... Uh, they were prophesying about grace that was literally to be ours. And they were searching and inquiring carefully. Little did they know how God was going to dot every I and cross every T. But now the author of Hebrews, in essence, is saying, look, by the grace of God, because of the new covenant, and through the word that's been revealed, God has dotted those I's and crossed those T's. And look at the reality. It's come from the shadow into the substance. Why would you ever go back to Judaism? And here are these people persecuted. Again, you know, think about it. We sometimes can criticize people when we read the Bible and fail to put ourselves in their shoes. If it came out today, I, I want us to think about it. If it came out today, it said, hey, if you come to church, you will pay 15 more percent in taxes. I wonder what kind of crowd we'd have next week. I wonder what kind of crowd we'd have if they said, look, you're fine to go to church, but if you go to church and you hold to an orthodox belief of what the scriptures say, if you don't accept a state version of how we want you to view the Bible, you will be taxed. Your kids will not be able to go to the school you want them to go to. You will deal with no promotions at work. I wonder at that point how many more people would say, you know what, church online is pretty nice. I can be a Christian in my home, teach my kids the gospel, but what are we doing when we think that way? We're beginning to compromise the truth of Christianity. And these people in real time were facing the plundering of their property. They were facing the prospect of martyrdom. And you know what they started thinking? You know what? Judaism wasn't that bad. We sort of liked it. We liked all the festivals. We liked all the ritual. We liked all that we participated in. And in essence, the author is saying, if you go back to the shadow, you miss the very substance that all the shadows were pointing to. And so that's what he's doing. He's saying it is an insufficient way. It's an insufficient way. It's unable to make perfect. I love this. It's, it's unable. It's unable to make perfect. You see, when you look at this, it says it can never buy the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make 
perfect those who draw near. It's unable. It's unable. It can't do it. It cannot do it. It cannot perform. I remember in, in my freshman year of college, I didn't play a lot, but I played one night. I don't know why I was playing against this guy. He was seven foot two, 320 pounds in Marietta, Georgia. I've never seen a bigger human. And I was guarding him, and he was telling me, my coach was telling me, my uncle was telling me to box him out. Good luck with that. Have you ever been around a human that big? I don't care what kind of technique you have. It's not happening. It is not happening. I don't care if you drive and push him back. I was 190 pounds soaking wet, and this guy was two of me and was huge. And I remember trying to box him out one time, and there was no chance. It wasn't going to happen. You see... What the author of Hebrews is doing, by being completely redundant, you may think, by being going over and over the point, he's saying, look, until we all get it in our head, there is no way that we can appease the holiness and the righteousness of God apart from a divine substitute who comes to take our place. This morning, are you tempted to think that way? Are you tempted to think that maybe, you know, it's, it's interesting sometimes how we think. I'm glad you're here, even if you're here with the wrong motivations, because you know what? We all have common ground at the foot of the cross. It takes one to know one. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know what? I need to be here. I need to clean my life up. I need to make myself more accepting to God. I've been doing bad things. I've been out of church. I need to sort of make things right and you're missing the reality that the only way that you can be clean and forgiven and right before a holy God is through the goodness and the grace of Jesus, understand something. Everybody that's come out of that mindset understands where you are. And the only reason we would even think differently about it is because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus. Amen? But it's, it's a wearisome, wearisome journey because it not only is a shadow but it is unable. It can't do it. It doesn't forgive sins. It doesn't give you access. It doesn't fulfill the goal. It's an insufficient way. It can't do it. It can't reach the objective. It's not going to happen. Those that draw near are left disillusioned because not only does it not give you access, it actually points to the reality of how far you are away. When you go and you see a wall and you see a holy place that has a holy veil that's blocking the entrance into the holy place, you begin to understand only one person at that time could go into that holy place. It was the high priest, and he could only do it one day a year. And even then, when he went into the holy place, it was like there was an exhale when the other priest would see the high priest come out of the most holy place because they understood the holiness of God was so serious that it wasn't a given that the high priest would even come out alive. You see, we see this over and over and over. And what's happening is, is that it cannot cleanse the conscience of the people. And that's what he says in verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If this were to be successful, if this were to truly give forgiveness, it would have brought about a tangible result where the people that were coming to bring the sacrifices would have experienced the reality of the forgiveness of sins. But they weren't. Their consciousness were still defiled. You know, we see in the Bible defiled consciences, a conscience. We see a seared conscience. We don't see a clean conscience apart from the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus. Sin will defile our conscience, and the only way we can experience forgiveness is that Jesus took our place, that we have a mediator, a great representative, a holy one that has come fully God, fully man, to be our substitute, and that's his point. The law is an insufficient way. It not only is unable to make you perfect, unable to give you access, it's not only just a shadow, it reminds of sin, but it can't take away the sins. And that's what we see in verse three, in verse four. It's a reminder of sins every year. Verse four, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But we see, first of all, an insufficient way. 
Second of all this morning, we see a sufficient Savior. And in this part of the passage, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through verse 9. Let's read it. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We see the sufficiency of the Savior. And as we look at the sufficiency of the Savior, we see an insufficient way with the law, but then we see a sufficient Savior. And what does it tell us about him? We see three things. One, we see it, he comes into the world. He comes into the world. We, we see not only that he comes into the world, but we see that he comes with the purpose. And we're going to see that purpose here as we walk through this. He comes willing he comes to do away with the first and establish the second. So we see the incarnation pictured. We see the reality that this was obedience. This was willful service on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see a quotation here. We see a quotation from the Old Testament. When we look at this text, we see Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. It's interesting because... If you read that text, you see that in the Old Testament passage, it refers to the ears that have been opened rather than a body that has been prepared. It's fascinating because when we read the New Testament, we have an explanation of the Old Testament. It's like uh, if you were to talk to the author of a book and you were reading through a series or the producer of a TV series, and you wanted to get explanation, the greatest place you could go would be the author or the producer or the director. You say, what were you intending to do here? So when we read the New Testament, give explanation of the Old Testament, it's a divine commentary as to how to understand it. But it's caused many people, just like me and you, to look at this and go, wow, I wonder why that is, why the Old Testament passage speaks about the ear. It says, but you have given me an open ear in Psalm 40, verse 6. And now in the Hebrews portion, it says, a body thou hast prepared for me. A lot of interesting explanations. I like what one commentator says. The hollowing out of ears was part of the total work of fashioning a human body. And ears were selected as the part to emphasize because they were symbols of obedience as the organ of the reception of God's word and will. Christ needed a body in order to offer himself as the final sacrifice. What a picture of Philippians chapter two, when Jesus made himself of no reputation, when Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, when he was the servant. In chapter two, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He came willingly. He came to this world. We see reference here to the incarnation. We see reference here to the fact that he was willing to the point of death. And what we see here also, we see this picture that, that what God is after, he wasn't after the blood of animals. He wanted the believer's heart. And what we're seeing, you know, when we look at the Old Testament and all the gaps we haven't totally come together yet, we have to keep in mind that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the old. We have to keep in mind that the only way that God could have the believer's heart would ultimately be if there was one who would come and take the place for sinners. Because how could there be a believer if we are unrepentant, wicked sinners? The only way that there could be believers would be if there was one, the sacrificial lamb, that would come and be their substitute. And that's what we see here. Hebrews is explaining, look, this is a better way. There's an insufficient way in the law. It was a shadow. It was insufficient. It was unable. It only reminded of sins. It couldn't take away sins. But there was a sinless Savior. He's sufficient. 
He came. He fulfilled Psalm 40. He fulfilled the very words that were written about him, messianic in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And like Psalm 51, 10 says, where David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Ultimately, that could only be fulfilled through the work of Jesus. Think about it. If the law was insufficient to forgive sins, how in the world would the law create within us a new heart? It was incapable. But what do we see? Everything in the old, even David was looking towards the promised Messiah. He was looking towards the promise of a son that would come from his line in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what do we see? That the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's capable of fulfilling all of this. He comes willing. He comes to do away with the second. He comes, I mean, to do away with the first in order to establish the second. He comes into the world. He comes willing. He comes to do away with the first. We see an insufficient way in verses one through four. We see a sufficient savior in verses five through nine. But look at what he says about a sufficient sacrifice. In verses 10 through verse 14. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's look at this. The first thing we see about the sufficiency of this sacrifice is that it brings finality. It brings finality. You know, right off the bat in verse 1 of our verse uh, 10, we see that you know, think about all the different priests. Every priest stands daily. Some commentators speak of, you know, thousands of priests that would have been eligible to serve because of the line of Aaron. So we've got, as opposed to numerous priests, we have one priest. You know, we think about the priests, the, the multitude of those priests, but we also think about the idea that there was also multiple sacrifices offered by these priests. I mean, think about how many sacrifices had to be offered in order for the sins of the priests to be dealt with and in order for the sins of the people to be dealt with. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of sacrifices. But as opposed to numerous priests, there's one priest. As opposed to numerous sacrifices, there's one sacrifice. Now, another thing that he does here, we, we see the finality of it, but do you notice, I was reading this, and look at verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service. I mean, a lot of times, we've got a lot of uh, wonderful moms and grandmothers in this room, and uh, you know, it's been said by a lot of uh, kids, as you get older and you go home, to see uh, your parents the first time you go home in college or later, early in your 20s, and, and you notice that everybody else is sitting on the couch, but mama never sits down. You ever notice that? Mama never sits. She's always at work. And if you ever said anything like, hey, mom, why don't you sit down? She'd look at you like you're crazy, right? She'd be like, well, I can't sit down because I'm working. I've got dinner cooking. I've got this going on. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And why would the priest have a lot of furniture within that tabernacle. But why wouldn't there be any chairs? Why wouldn't there be any chairs? Because the priest would never have time to sit. You see, as opposed to the numerous amount of the priest, as opposed to the numerous amount of the sacrifices, as opposed to the standing, perpetual standing of the priest in that tent, Jesus is one high priest. He offers one sacrifice, and rather than stand all the time, what does he do? He sits at the right hand of God. 
You see what he does here? He's showing them something. He's saying, look, there's an insufficient way that comes through the law. But then he wants them to see the sufficiency of our Savior. He is willing to come in the incarnation. He is willing to offer up his life. He is faithful to do away with the first, to bring in the second. And then he says, but let me tell you about the sufficiency of his sacrifice. His sacrifice is so much greater than any sacrifice that the old covenant and the old law could ever come up with. His sacrifice is complete. His sacrifice is perfect. And unlike the people that stood in that tent all the time, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You remember, he said, you know, he comes, the the old covenant, the old tabernacle was just a copy, a shadow of the true reality. And he said, you know, Jesus didn't go through a tent made by man's hands. He went through the heavens and he went into the heavenly, holy place. And what did he do? That's picturing his exaltation after Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And what is it pointing to? I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I've grown to understand theologically more about the exaltation of Christ. Anybody else with me? I knew that that was a biblical doctrine that we needed to uphold, but I never understood the practical application of what the exaltation is teaching us. It's not only teaching us the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's teaching us the sufficiency of his work at the cross. It's teaching us the reality of the finality of the perfect sacrifice that only he can provide. He sits down at the right hand of God. All of these contrasts point to who he is. They stand, he sits. Every priest stands daily at his service, often repeatedly. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, we, we see this, look at, look at verse 13. Waiting from that time, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, that's interesting. This is a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. In Psalm 110, verse 1, we see this passage where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Do you remember that? Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament of the Old Testament, Psalm 110. When we look at this, when does this take place? When does he put all his enemies at the footstool of our Lord. Well, we read about it in Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what are we learning? That's coming in the future at the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we see all of these things happening, but notice it keeps getting better. What, what about this sacrifice? This sacrifice is sufficient because it brings finality. It's one complete work. We don't have to keep having sacrifices. You know, one of the reasons that we neglect the Roman Catholic view of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is they almost seem to suggest that we need to continually to sacrifice the Lord. No, we don't. His work is complete at the cross. He doesn't have to be re-sacrificed every time we take the Lord's Supper. It's done. It's perfect. It brings finality. But it brings positional and progressive sanctification. You may be thinking, what in the world does that mean? That's like, uh, you may be thinking this is like, what in the world is that? The idea is this. This passage teaches us in verse 14 that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are set apart unto God. Now think about that. This is amazing. How in the world, if you think about it, like if, you, if you're following the argument of the author, how in the world could people that could never draw near, people that were continuously reminded of sin, people that were continually reminded of their inability, how in the world could they be set apart wholly unto God? This is unbelievable. How? Because the Bible teaches us that because Jesus is our perfect substitute, he dies in our place. And it gets better and better and better. 
And the Bible teaches us that because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can stand before a holy God in right standing in the courtroom of the Almighty because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is, is, is imputed to our account. I'll tell you, you know, sometimes it's not until you recognize the inability of your flesh, the inability and the weariness of trying hard to get yourself cleaned up and to recognize the futility that that can never happen, that you begin to marvel at the good news and the hope of the gospel that under the old law, under the priesthood of Aaron, it was weariness. They couldn't make it. They couldn't have access. They couldn't experience forgiveness. They couldn't get there. But now this sacrifice is so final, once for all, effective, it accomplishes what it intends to, that anybody in this room, regardless if you know big theological works, by grace through faith, Receiving this gift as a child, depending upon the goodness of Christ, brings you now into right standing with the very one that was separated from all mankind in the Holy of Holies. And now you have access, and now you're set apart, and now you are declared, because of the holiness of Christ, you are called a saint you are set apart. You're, you're set apart unto good works. You're set apart unto God. But look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, now if you go back to verse 10 really quick, look at verse 10. And in verse 10, we see another idea of this. I read through it quickly. I didn't mention it. And if I can find verse 10, that would be awesome. Um, but verse 10 is in here somewhere. I'll find it on here. Hang on. We can do this quick. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 speaks about the same principle. And what we see there is that this sanctification, we are set apart unto God. Look at verse one, verse 10. In verse 10, he says, And by that will... We have been sanctified. Now, a lot of times, if you're, if you're into this theology, we tend to talk about sanctification as if it's only progressive. But here, this is speaking of sanctification as something that's already been experienced. That's why we call it positional sanctification. It means that you may be here not understanding any of those words, but if you're a believer in Christ, you're set apart unto God because of the righteousness and the holiness and the goodness of Jesus. You can't see it. You can't fathom it often, but it's a reality that the Bible says is true. But here's the good news. It's not just positional. It's not just who you are at salvation. There's also a component whereby God has put his spirit within you that you might grow and mature up into Christ Jesus. How many of you have seen little bitty kids that uh, you hadn't seen them for three months? And what do you see? What do you say when you see them at Walmart? Oh my goodness. You've grown. I, used to, I grew like crazy when I was a kid. People told me that every time I went anywhere. You've grown so much. You've grown so much. And I just got so tired of hearing it. I grew like eight inches in like one summer, it seemed like. And everywhere I went, people were like, whoa. But you know what? Here's what's amazing. Isn't it incredible that people that never could get access to God have the capacity to grow up into holiness in Christ? Wow. Folks, if that's gonna happen, you know what we don't need? We don't need another religious system. We'll just become more phony than ever before. We need the living God to do a work on our behalf. Welcome to the book of Hebrews. We have a high priest who is faithful 
who's gone behind the curtain for us. The high priest who has now brought us near. The high priest who has forgiven us our sins. The high priest who now has come to live within us, to do through us what we could never do on our own in organized religion. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not trying harder that you might work your way to God. The good news of the gospel is not going to church more so you can feel you get all your spiritual check boxes right. The good news of the gospel is recognizing we have a great high priest who stood in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, you remember we looked at how in the world would we eagerly await the coming of Christ because we're growing up into sanctification. You remember 1 John, anyone who's born of God cannot continually living habitually in sin. And why does he say that? Because his seed abides in him. How in the world are you gonna begin to reflect things that are of God? Because it's only if you're in the faith. And what he's saying is his sacrifice brought finality. It brought it brought the application that we needed to be forgiven and cleansed, but it not only set us apart, it gave us the want to inwardly. Remember Paul says in Philippians that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How are we gonna will and work for the pleasure of God unless the divine want to is not within us? And that want to comes through the reality of the living Holy Spirit of God. Praise God. We, we keep going here. We see an insufficient way, a sufficient Savior, a sufficient sacrifice. The final thing this morning we're going to look at and we're done is a sufficient covenant. A sufficient covenant. We're going to go quick here. He quotes out of Jeremiah 31. We've already seen him do this when he quoted earlier in chapter 8. But in Jeremiah 31, that's that promise of the new covenant that we see in the Old Testament. It's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through verse 34. And what's so significant about these verses here in relationship to his argument, he wants them to see how sufficient this gospel is. It does a work. It, it does a work that's complete. It, it does something that is so remarkable. It does an inner work in us. It doesn't inner work. I love this because it goes right hand in hand with sanctification. How does God bring about obedience in our life? He puts the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us, and then and only then do we have a different appetite. It's sort of like uh, I can't get Will to prefer vegetables over candy. I just can't do it. He got uh, the, the, the candy. You know the candy from the uh, homecoming parade. And uh, I was up here at the church yesterday afternoon and he called me and said, hey, dad, make sure you get my candy bag. Well, I'd already gone through it and got everything that was good. I was good. And, uh, but what happens? He, he gets that candy bag and he immediately wants to eat it. If I'd have brought home a bag of broccoli and zucchini and uh, other items from the store and put it on the bed, he would not have been eating those yesterday. So let me ask you something. How do the people of the world who love sin, who love selfishness, who love to worship themselves over the creator, how would they ever have an appetite for the things of God? Have you ever thought about that? How's that gonna happen? The only way that happens is what we're learning through the book of Hebrews. We need a high priest who not only can bring us cleansing, bring us access, bring us forgiveness. We need a high priest who can do heart surgery in our lives. A high priest who can literally put his desires into us. A high priest that can be capable of writing his law on our hearts and put it on our minds. You see, that's the work of the gospel. Man-made religion says, do this, do this, do this, and climb your way to God. Christianity says that's impossible. It is utterly impossible. It takes the blood of a sinless substitute. 
one who's fully God, one who's fully man, to die in your place. A gift that can only be received by grace through faith. You may be sitting here today thinking, what in the world, how in the world do I merit such a wonderful work of God? The Bible says you can't earn it. Ephesians chapter two says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I could somehow achieve this work, I could look down on you. I can say, you know what? That person hasn't done one thing, but look at what I've done. I've made my way to God. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that it's a message for the weak and the weary and the sick and the sinful. If you're here today and you're thinking, wow, I want a clean conscience. I want to feel forgiven. I want to walk with God. I want access. I don't want all of these programs, all of these men-made You talk about depressing, man-made religious attempts at self-righteous just make you want to throw up. You talk about weak and weary and boring and futile and absolutely bringing nothing. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves the weary and the weak. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying this is an inner work. It's an inner work. It's an inner work of of salvation. I I love this because all through here, you know, in verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. You may be thinking, how does the Holy Spirit bear witness to us? I love what one commentator says. The author once again attributes the word of the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I love that. You know what that means? It means that when you read your Bibles, you're not reading just the words of men that have died you're reading the words of God. The Holy Spirit, through his wisdom, through his power, demonstrated his unique ability, taking people that were frail, that were weak, and he moved them along like a sailboat on the water. As the wind moves that sail, the Spirit came across them, and they not only wrote what was intended, they wrote the very words of God. You see, this is an inner work. This is a forgiving work. It's a complete work. Look at how he speaks about it here. I mean, the law is written on our minds. The law is written on our hearts. It's something so drastic. There's no remembrance of sins. Think about this. Verse 17, then he adds, quoting out of Jeremiah 31, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Sins speak about missing the true end and scope of our lives. It's an offense unto God, lawlessness. We live lawlessly. And what happens? Through the grace of Jesus Christ and through his in complete forgiveness that he offers at the cross. By grace through faith, when you believe on Jesus and you trust in him, you experience the forgiveness of sins. It's an inner work that God does in you, but it also speaks of no remembrance of past sins. But then it speaks in the last verse here in verse 18 of full forgiveness, full forgiveness. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I love it because, you know, when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, and we learn at the very end, before he gave up his breath, we learn that that veil that separated the most holy place was ripped into two. There was access. We also know from church history, the remarkable, isn't it amazing how thick-headed we all are? And the Lord in his sovereignty knew that the people would always be tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. And even after he did this work, they still tried to, and they still do today. But do you know what happened about just a 
many people think it was within five years after the writing of this letter. You know what happened in 70 AD? There was a guy named Titus that led the Romans, and he came into Jerusalem. And guess what he did? For the first time since 586 BC, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, that temple had been rebuilt. Titus destroyed that temple. You see, there wasn't a mistake in the providence of God. God was yet again illustrating that it wasn't going to be through a man-made temple that people had access to God. You see, when we look at this letter, we see a sufficient gospel. Today, I wonder, as we close, where are you at? Um, so many questions. I was thinking of just some questions in my own heart. Um, it, it's a sufficient, sufficient gospel. Have you come face to face with the insufficiency of any way of self-justifying yourself before God? Are you realizing that it doesn't work? I, one of my prayers today is, is that every person that walks out of this door would recognize there is no way that you can save yourself. But I pray that we would all see that the one who can save you is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're insufficient in our own, no matter works, no matter religion, no matter self-effort. But the gospel reveals a fully sufficient Savior, a fully sufficient sacrifice, a fully sufficient covenant. It's all there for us in Jesus. I pray today that you would trust in him. I pray today that you would cry out to him. You see, uh, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you facing right now? Are you anxious? Are you facing a crisis? Think about it. What do you, what do you need? What, what do you need? If you were honest and just gut level real, and we got, you know, a lot of times we don't do that at church, and you really spoke what, where you're really at, do you, do you, I want you to see something. What you need is the living God working in and through you to see his truth. And the book of Hebrews is saying that only is possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see that this reality of the great high priest is fully practical to everything we face in our life. He's the sinless, sympathetic high priest who lives interceding for us in his role seated at the right hand of God. And what did we learn last time? Is he yet to do other things? Yeah, we learned that he's coming again. We learned he's coming again. We learned that we're to live eagerly waiting. But I pray that, uh, I pray you ask yourself that question. What is it I'm facing? And what does Hebrews, and how does Hebrews shed light on my issues? How does Hebrews shed light on my struggles? How does Hebrews shed light on my life? And I pray we would see that because Jesus is the great high priest, we can have hope for living because he is sufficient. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the truth that we have continually seen in the book of Hebrews. I pray, God, today as we leave that these truths would be so dear to our heart. Thank you, God, that uh, I pray, Lord, as a congregation, Lord, that, that all of us here are just overwhelmed. Lord, I thank you that uh, I'm, I'm speaking to people that, that we all have so much in common. Lord, that uh, there's not people that have arrived and people that haven't arrived, but we are we are sinners in need of the grace of Jesus. And Lord, the only way that I have hope to stand before you is because Christ, as my high priest, takes my place. And Lord, I pray that the youngest in here and the oldest in here would see that same reality, and I pray that they would see the good news of the gospel. I pray today they would cry out for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.